you would get out the uh, sheet that was handed you, it gives an outline. I was going to touch on several passages, and I thought it would be helpful to you to have those in front of you as we talk about them. Because we're, well, I'll get to some of the nuts and bolts here in a minute. Let's pray as we begin. Our Father, how we thank you for your grace, your spirit among us, the great privilege of participating in a service like this, of seeing men added to the deacons and Lord, your, your great grace among us, we praise you, we thank you. Uh, we are humbled, Lord, by your goodness. And we pray that you would continue to help us understand more of the great work of the Holy Spirit, who he is, what he does for us, and the, the rich treasure that we have in him. Enable us, Lord, not to neglect uh, Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, not to neglect the good that you do us, that, that encourages us, that gives us faith, that gives us hope, gives us expectant hearts for all that God will unfold for his people. And so we pray, uh, unlock these things for us today, that we may grow in your grace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> One of my favorite Comedians is uh, Stephen Wright. I know some of you like him as well. And if you know Stephen Wright, he has a series of totally unconnected things that he says in monotone, you know, and they're all far-fetched. Like his, one of my favorites is, uh, he says, our school colors are clear. My, my school colors were clear. No, I'm not naked. I'm in the band. You know, that'd be a typical statement of his. Um, he says, everywhere is within walking distance if you have the time, right? He says, I'm starting a book. I've already got the page numbers done. Or he says, I wish my name was quote so that my final words on my deathbed would be end quote. But the one I wanted to bring out, it's one of my favorites, where he says, you may not be a fan of Stephen Wright. That's okay. Um, he says, I'm addicted to placebos. I would quit, but it wouldn't matter anyway. <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> now, in the knowledge of God, I want to underscore this. The knowledge of God is not a placebo. It matters critically. Peter tells us, in 2 Peter, that it is by the knowledge of God that we come to be fully equipped to live out our life before God. And particularly, it's interesting, when he talks about the knowledge of God in Ephesians 1, he goes on, and this is how he defines the knowledge of God. What is the hope of his calling... What is the inheritance that you're to receive? And what is the great power towards you who believe? You see, the knowledge of God, as Paul and Peter talk about it, is the knowledge of God revealed to, so that you understand who he is to you and for you. 
God is deliberate in that. He wants to reveal himself to you so that you understand the riches and fullness of his salvation. What he is doing for you now, what he will do for you in the future. And one of the most neglected aspects of the Holy Spirit is his work in, you might say, the term eschatology or his work in resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth. It is interesting that resurrection itself is so downplayed. Uh, Gaffin, in his book on the resurrection, cites systematic theology after systematic theology that spend pages and pages on the atonement and then a little snippet on the resurrection again and again and again. So overall, in the history of theology, the resurrection has been neglected, and then particularly the Spirit's role in the resurrection, as we're calling it, the spirit and new creation. For the resurrection is the beginning of the new creation. So first, you'll see here, we're going to talk about the connection of Christ's resurrection and our resurrection, and then we're going to move into the fact that it is the spirit that brings both of them about, and then we'll talk about how the spirit has been given to us as a guarantee of that final resurrection. So you have in this passage uh, that we begin with, here's number one, of course, Christ's resurrection is the source and basis for his people's resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Notice the word, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. The very indication that he is the first of that which is to come. The, The coming fruits will be just like this fruit, Resurrection just like this resurrection. For as by a man came death, that is Adam, by a man, that is Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead. So it's not only that he was raised, he brought about the resurrection from the dead that's going to apply to all of his people. And then he says, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. All of us by sin, or by birth, are joined to Adam, and we will all die. And if, we, if that's all that we are, we will die. But if we further then become in Christ, we will be made alive. We will be resurrected. Notice Romans 6 there. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And then he gets really explicit in Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So it's a resurrection like his to a glorious body like his. That's why he can say what he does in 2 Thessalonians 2. As we said before, this sounds almost blasphemous. But to this he's called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't sound right, does it? I'm going to obtain the glory of Jesus Christ? Until you realize he's talking about the glory of his humanity. Certainly not the glory of his deity, you know. But the glory into which his humanity entered, remember, he only went through all of that and brought humanity to that glory so that you could be brought into that glory. That's the only reason he did it. 
wasn't so much for him, it was for you. That's your glory he won. Your glory he entered into and is going to bring you into. And so, Romans 8 can say, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Firstborn means the first resurrected among many brothers. And of course, that includes sisters as well. But the whole plan from the beginning uh, before time was that we would be conformed to that resurrection of Christ, conformed to that glory. And so, as one scholar says, Christ is a founder of a new and better humanity. Through his resurrection, we enter into resurrection. We'll explore some of what that means. Secondly, it is the Spirit that brings this about as Paul brings it forth in Romans 8. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So though your body is dead and dying, the Spirit will bring life, and, and I think the very best commentators say, he's indicating here the resurrection already. The Spirit brings about life in the face of that death. And then he goes on, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Well, you see, the implication is the Spirit is the one that brought Jesus to life, and that Spirit, the the one who, uh, that Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, now that Spirit is in you, and it is through that Spirit that you will be raised in the final day. So the Holy Spirit, Though he dwells in you now, he has a final goal, an objective in his dwelling in you. He's not going to lose this body in which he dwells. He's going to raise it. He indwells you for, and we'll see this more on the last point, but he dwells you with the future anticipation of this indwelling having its rich final conclusion. You'll be raised to a new body. You'll have resurrection. The very presence of the Spirit is speaking already of the future is resurrection. The one who raised Christ from the dead is the one who now indwells you and will raise you from the dead as well. So, Christ's resurrection brings about our resurrection. Christ's resurrection was brought about through the power of the Spirit, and so will ours. This becomes even more explicit when we come to point three. Okay? This is a little academic up to now, but we're going to get into some practical things here. So, not only does he raise us, but our whole resurrection life is because of the Spirit and is carried out in the Spirit. In other words, we are raised in that final day to a whole new life that is marked by the Spirit. And it takes on certain characteristics because of the Spirit. And that's what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians. And I would urge you, get really familiar with this passage and know it, because it's, it's really one of the most uh, important passages in all of Paul's writing. But it's neglected a lot. So, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, that is our present bodies, as they're sown in death, 
they are perishable. But when they're finally raised, they are imperishable. That's his contrast, right? What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. So he's talking about the difference in our body now and the body that we will receive. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown, and this is kind of a conclusion here, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And then a little later he says, the last Adam, that is Christ, became life-giving spirit. And I've capitalized those words to indicate that these point to the Holy Spirit himself, okay? Now, Murray, Murray Harris has called this identity with difference, okay? Identity with difference. It is the same body, it's still you, and it's still your body, but in resurrection, your body has become very different, very much better, right? It is somewhat like a radical renovation of a house. They didn't build a new house, but this is a very different house than it was before, okay? It's it's not a perfect analogy, but it helps to understand that your body has a radical renovation at resurrection. And it's important to see that the word spiritual here does not mean non-physical, okay? The word spiritual does not mean non-physical because the whole discussion here is about the body. It's about what's going to happen to the body and the way the body's going to look here and the way the body's going to look there. So Paul is not saying you have a physical body here, but you won't have a physical body there. You'll only be spirit. That's denying everything he says about the body. But that's why capitalizing it helps us to understand. This body that we will have will be fully conditioned and shaped by the Spirit, fully enabled by the Spirit. You might say fully owned and operated by the Spirit so that it will be reflective of the Spirit and take on the characteristics of the Spirit. That's a spiritual body, okay? There are three things in the Word of God constantly associated with the Spirit. Again and again, life, glory, and power. Life, glory, and power. They're the very characteristics here. So when he says we'll be imperishable and you'll have glory and you'll have power, he's basically explaining all that it means that you'll have a spiritual body because it's going to take on the very characteristics of the Spirit. It's because it is a spiritual body that it's imperishable, that it's glorious, that it's powerful. Our bodies are so enriched in the spirit and resurrection that we display on a human scale, along with the humanity of Jesus himself, the very attributes of the spirit, life, glory, and power. Take life. This says we're imperishable. So Our whole existence at that point is marked by indestructible life, life that never fades, it never declines, it never decreases, it's never diminished or reduced in any way, it never sags or withers or wilts. 
It's chock full, jam-packed, abounding and brimming over with robust and energetic life. That's the way you're going to be forever and ever. You'll be marked by glory. Speaks first of your status, of your honor and your royalty. As Jesus said, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We're told you will reign with Christ. This is your glory, your royalty, and you will inherit your kingdom. This also speaks of a kind of majesty that you will have as individuals, especially that you'll be marked by an utterly sincere and earnest love and goodness. That will be your glory. You'll have a perfect transparency with each other. We'll have a beautiful, open, and free, and joyful pouring ourselves out into each other's lives. And a wonderful, happy basking in the love we receive. We'll bask in giving, and we'll bask in, in receiving. On a human scale, we will reflect the very joy that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have known from all eternity. We'll be lost in joy constantly in each other because that is our glory that we finally love. We finally love perfectly. And it's hard to imagine the overwhelming, constant, pure pleasure of love that we will enjoy. It's really hard to imagine. And we'll have this mutual pleasure in our unending vision and adoration of God that we will enjoy together. We went to a a play Friday night, and it was full, and it was wonderful to have everybody laugh together and everybody cheer together. It just wouldn't have been the same thing if Kay and I had been sitting there by ourselves, you know. (laughs) You know, it just, just would have been terrible. And that's part of the unity the, the, we all know what it is to be a fan of the same thing, of the same team, or the same movie, or the same book, and start being excited, talking to someone else about this thing you both love and admire. You just love that. Or to be a part of a stadium that's just raucous because TCU uh, is, goes undefeated in the Big 12 this year. You know, that kind of, I'm sorry, Texas, all that. But anyway, this is... This is what we're going to do, to have this mutual joy and pleasure, the mutual happiness of being jointly adoring God and living in his presence. All of this is a part of our glory. It's the full glory of Christ's humanity that we will know, and it's what the Spirit will bring about in the resurrection. That's what the Spirit brings us to, because we become spiritual in that day. And finally, we'd be marked by power. We will have authority over the new creation. We will have all our capacities as human beings brought to their highest possible level to engage in the everlasting happiness of forming and creating in the new heavens and the new earth. We'll have perfected human wisdom. We will delight in that power and glory of wisdom. We will know perfect collaboration in everything we do, perfect delight in all of our endeavors and all of our teamwork. We will exult in every minute of life in creation and culture. 
will apparently have whole new capacities in our glory and power to take in and enjoy the greatness of God. He's unlimited, so our quest to know more of him will be unlimited, like that picture of Narnia where the Narnias just keep on going bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and you just keep running and running and running into the next Narnia. That's us running into the glory of God forever together. It's interesting, in the Roman world, people were divided between weak and strong and rich and poor, humble and elite. But God is saying here that there is no line drawn in the middle of the church between these groups. In the church, we are all on the same side in this world and the next. We all are on the same side. We all are destined for power and glory, and imperishable lives. We're all destined for royalty. And the greatest of human power or prestige is nothing to compare to that which is to come to every believer. Believers have way more critical things in common with one another than any of you have with any unbeliever in your same social standing. We don't tend to think like that. We have people that we're like in this society, people we're unlike in this society. You're most unlike any unbeliever because you have the makings of glory and power and an imperishable life, being totally governed by the Spirit in that day. And the last point, you see, it helps us to understand that the Holy Spirit is God's pledge of that final resurrection life. Romans 8, 23, after talking about the creation groaning, he says, not only the creation groans, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You see, the first fruits of that redemption. It's not only that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, you're having the Spirit and His beginning influence in your life, and the beginning love that you have for your, His people, and the beginning interest in love in Jesus, and love of worship, and love of praise, etc. These, this is the uh, first fruit of the Spirit, the first fruit that's telling you you're destined for power and glory and imperishability. It's yours. First fruits is not like you have this stamp, and this stamp stands for the fact that you're going to get a, a, a peach pie at the end of the day. No, it's a bite of peach pie. You say, this is your pledge that you're going to get a whole peach cobbler. And you're tasting it, and you're thinking, oh, wow, this is good. I was one bite. I can't wait to eat the whole cobbler. That's what it is. It's the first fruits, the taste, the taste of the new heavens and the new earth. We experiencing the taste of the new heavens and the new earth as the people of God. And so Ephesians 1 can say, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. How glorious. He wants you to taste it. He wants you to feel it. He wants you to experience it. He wants you to anticipate it. Every effect of the Spirit 
in our life, corporately what we enjoy as a, in worship, what we enjoy as we spend ourselves for others, it's a taste of the new heavens and the new earth. I'm going to end with another quote from another comedian. You could fire me after this. Okay. Brian Reagan. He says, we have two wonderful kids. And we have another kid. (laughs) Not great if that's true, of course, but anyway. Now, we can begin to think of ourselves as that way. And I've heard a lot of you express this in counseling. That everybody in this church just seems, they just have so much together. They know so much. They talk about the Bible. They know theology. And then there's you, right? Then there's you. You know your own problems. You know your own struggles. You know your own sin. You know your own failures. You know your own thoughts. You know your own desires. And you just know nobody is like this. Yeah, he has all these wonderful people. And he's got this other kid. He's got me. This passage is telling you, these passages, that God doesn't have any other kids, right? God doesn't have any other kids. He has what he calls wonderful kids. They're not perfect. And sometimes they grieve the spirit, as it says in Ephesians 4. But undergirding all of this, the whole atmosphere in which they live their life before this God who is rescuing them is that he sings over them. He rejoices over them. He has set his love upon them from eternity, and no one is going to snatch them out of his hand. They are his children. Your status is the same as Christ. He is called, as a human being, my beloved. And Paul calls you the beloved in Christ You are his beloved. There are no other kids. You are his wonderful children. Not wonderful because you're good or perfect in that sense. But wonderful because you are loved by God. And he has everything in store for you. And he's given you his spirit. Not just to change you now, but so that you can taste the cobbler of the new heavens and the new earth. He always delights to do you good always let us pray 